Hey everyone, welcome to another edition of Inside Rosenberg and Estes. Today we're talking to Corey Rosen and we are going to talk all about housing discrimination and why you need to think about housing discrimination before you do a project, while you're running your entire portfolio of buildings, and what you need to know today in order to avoid any type of discrimination issue. If you can't avoid it, we're also going to talk about what you can do if you're accused of it, and we're going to talk about what you can do to prevent it in the first place with your operating procedures. So it's my pleasure to welcome Corey Rosen to the Inside Rosenberg and Estes Show. Corey, welcome. Thanks for joining us today. Thanks, Steve. Nice to be here. All right. So, Corey, tell us a little bit about you and why you became a lawyer and how you got into the practice of housing discrimination law. Well, it's convoluted, but I um, became a lawyer um, or decided to become a lawyer when I was in college. I did an internship um, in fashion. I wanted to be in fashion for Kenneth Cole. And during that internship, we did rotations and I ended up with the legal team for a few days. And I found what they were doing so interesting and pivoted to PLSA and decided to go to law school sort of on a whim hoping to do uh, trademark um, IP work. Graduated from law school in 2008 in a crazy financial crisis. Found out my offer was revoked um, to do IP work while in Thailand on my post-bar trip. Applied for any job I could. Fell into insurance defense, doing legal malpractice for real estate lawyers. Ended up being getting poached by a firm, a real estate firm that I represented in a malpractice case. Loving it um, and stuck with it. It was sort of half at the stance, and I hate when people say that everything was an accident or by luck, but it turns out that's how it was. And I love real estate, and I'm glad that I'm in real estate. And I can't really see myself doing anything else, especially in the legal field at this point. So um, that's it. I've been at Rosenberg and Estes since 2013, and I fell into the world of human rights law because I was assigned to a pretty high exposure case as a junior associate um, against the Durst organization brought by the U.S. Attorney's Office claiming that there were discriminatory design and construction practices across their portfolio. And through that work, I really got to study and delve deeply into the impact that the human rights laws have on real estate development and tenant selection procedures, um, commercial development, design and construction, et cetera. So you called it human rights. I'm curious, is it, so I, I said discrimination. Is human rights law a, a better name for it, a different name for it, a more politically correct name for it? Explain explain the difference so that I know and I call it the right thing. Well, it, there's discrimination. It, it's really one and the same. Um, we're talking about housing discrimination today and, and human rights law for housing and residential real estate. But the other aspect of my practice is um, public accommodations, commercial spaces, ADA compliance, et cetera. So when I speak about human rights as a whole, I'm talking in the uh, residential and commercial sectors. But discrimination is really what we're talking about today because it's how you can either intentionally or unintentionally discriminate against tenants and prospective tenants through your policies 
and how that can become a human rights issue opening you up to exposure as a residential real estate owner and developer. Okay, now the case you mentioned at the outset, you said it was brought by um, the, the the district attorney's office or the state attorney's office. and. Yeah. Explain the difference between a case that's brought by the government and a civil case brought by another, like by, brought by a person. Explain the, explain the difference between the two. That case isn't a great example of what the differences are because when the U.S. Attorney's Office sues in a federal court, it is, a, it is akin to a normal civil litigation. You go through the discovery process, the pleading process, etc., a lot of my practice involves administrative proceedings brought by the State Division of Human Rights and the City Commission on Human Rights. And those cases involve an individual complaining to those agencies that they, in, they were personally subject to a discriminatory practice by their landlord or prospective landlord, a broker, etc. And that agency conducts a pre-investigation involving um, an onslaught of questions into your business practices, um, your history with tenants in that protected class. So oftentimes you'll get a letter from an administrative agency saying that someone has accused you of source of income discrimination, which is um, which is the, the real hot button item in my opinion right now. It's where most of the complaints are coming in. Um, and that involves a tenant with a Section 8 voucher or some sort of other form of government assistance um, not being selected as the tenant for a particular apartment. Instead, the apartment went to someone with cash that wasn't using government assistance, and the claim is that you preferred the cash client because you don't want to deal with vouchers and are discriminating against people on government assistance. And when that happens, the City Commission on Human Rights or the Division on Human Rights will send a letter with you know, 15 or so demands for everyone with a voucher that ever applied to your portfolio, all communications with voucher applicants, what your policy is for reviewing voucher applicants versus cash applicants, um, how many you've placed, how many you haven't placed, etc. And a normal um, attorney in a litigation would object on the basis of form of the question, relevancy, et cetera, et cetera. My opinion in those cases is to just turn everything over and cooperate. And whenever I've done that, and whenever I've just been like, you know, this is it, this is what we did, we have this many voucher applicants, et cetera, they, the complaints usually go away quickly. A lot of times I will end up with a case that someone else has started here where we took the real litigator shark approach at the onset of a proceeding. It dragged out for years and then the agency gets mad and intense civil penalties accrue to compensate the agency for their time, including compensatory damages, et cetera. I just settled a proceeding like this on behalf of one of our clients last week. Originally, there was a huge damages claim. This um, woman with a voucher was forced to live in a shelter system for a year because she didn't get this apartment, didn't understand why she didn't get the apartment, et cetera. We turned over everything. We had all of the employees that worked on her on her application on a Zoom with the investigative agency and the complainant, and they explained the process. And they said, you know, we have a um, a company uh, goal to place as many people in housing that are on government assistance as possible. One of the employees had actually been in the shelter system, 
And because we were so forthright and we turned everything over versus, you know, holding back and only giving what we have to give, it went away with no damages, no fines, no penalties, and an apology and a, you know, handshake was all that was needed to resolve it as opposed to, you know, tens of thousands of dollars and, you know, years of discovery and legal fees, which is where it really becomes very expensive. In your, in your experience, Corey, do, uh, do property owners... Uh, and their representatives take administrative proceedings less seriously than uh, normal civil proceedings? Do they, when they see a, a letter from an administrative agency, do they take them less seriously than they would if it was a letter from an attorney or a, you know, a, a, an actual a civil suit that was filed? Um, I don't think that's necessarily the case, but I do think that most people are surprised to hear that, you know, there are three there are three primary, not just three, but three primary laws that govern housing discrimination and um, human rights law as it pertains to housing. It's the Federal Fair Housing Act, the state human rights law or the executive law, and then the New York City human rights law or the administrative code in New York has a section on the city law. And I think what more people are surprised by is that the best place to litigate a housing discrimination case, in my opinion, is in federal court under the Fair Housing Act. And the scariest place to litigate a housing discrimination complaint is from a, from a um, respondent side, the city human rights law. Because, and, and I think that's counterintuitive to most people because they think federal court, that sounds really scary. It sounds really high stakes as opposed to like a city investigative agency. And the reason is that the city human rights law is very, very tenant and aggrieved person friendly and puts so much more of an onus on an owner or a you know, covered entity than the federal law does. For example, there's something called a reasonable accommodation slash modification. Um, and a reasonable accommodation is a change to typical rules and policies as it pertains to housing to accommodate someone with a disability. And those policies could include most prevalently allowing a emotional support animal or service animal in a no-pets building. Um, and then a reasonable modification is doing physical work to an apartment or a common area of a building to allow it to be accessible to someone with a disability, putting in a ramp, putting in an accessible bathroom, etc. The federal law says that all reasonable modifications must be allowed at the expense of someone with a disability and that the person with a disability at the conclusion of their tenancy has to restore the apartment or common area to its original condition at the conclusion. The state human rights law requires the tenant to pay for modifications inside the unit and to restore the unit at the conclusion of their tenancy and puts the onus on a landlord for the exterior modifications to the extent that they're reasonable expenses. The city human rights law makes it absolutely illegal to charge a tenant directly or indirectly, whether it's a slight increase in rent, et cetera, for any reasonable accommodation that you offer them in terms of modification, rule changes, et cetera. So it's counterintuitive to think that you want to be in federal court versus the city court, but I think that's the biggest misconception. Let's, let's talk about something you just brought up there, because this is, this is a topic that comes up constantly and that's the the emotional support animal 
Let's talk about, and people love to talk about this because we see all these outrageous things on social media. Like there was something I saw the other day that someone had, and this is an actual thing, an emotional support horse. I've seen an emotional support, an emotional support peacock. Mm -hmm. I mean, so in the context, in the context of New York city housing, right? Mm -hmm. What type of emotional support? First, define what an emotional support animal is in in the context of New York City housing. So, you know, everyone knows what a service animal is. Um, it's an animal that is trained to perform certain tasks to help someone with a disability. That's being a dog, um, et cetera. An emotional support animal ameliorates or alleviates the impact of a disability on someone's ability to use and enjoy their housing. Currently dealing with emotional support animals that are in the form of three parrots that are causing a complete and utter um, noise disruption for an entire building. I have, uh, I mean, mostly it's dogs, and let's be clear. Um, There are restrictions in New York on um, what type of animals can be emotional support animals when it comes to, uh, like, farm, I'm trying to think, I forget what, they have to be domesticated animals. You can't have like, livestock and things like that um, that are dangerous to health and human safety. But um, the biggest shock, I think, for most people is that you can't place breed or size restrictions on emotional support animals. So often, most emotional support animals that I get um, questions about are pit bulls because a lot of people have issues with pit bulls and they're. Um, you know, I don't know if it's true or not. I don't know much about pit bulls, but their tendency to be more violent, reactive. Um, and there's specific language in the New York City human rights law that prohibits breed restrictions. So, and I, I get a lot of questions about what if someone just has one of those form online print out like myserviceanimal.com from who knows where note. And unfortunately there's not much you can do. I mean, you have to sort of take it at face value if the right documentation is provided and, you know, the animal has its shots and is registered, et cetera, you can't really stop a tenant or prospective tenant with an emotional support animal from bringing that animal into your building. Presuming they don't, you know, cause damage or injure other tenants, et cetera. There's not much recourse that you have. So is it, would it be discriminatory if the person who's applying for residency in one of your buildings discloses that they have an emotional support pit bull? Is it, is it discrimination if you don't give them the unit specifically because they have a, an emotional support pit bull? Yes. And in fact, um, maybe you, you say there's another reason, but that's a pretext case that you used another, you know, valid discriminatory reason to re- or non-discriminatory reason to reject the prospective tenant. But it was a pretext because of your discriminatory animus towards that emotional support animal. Um, it's it's not. I mean, I don't think most discrimination cases aren't, you know, I don't like that. I don't like this person. I don't like that person because of their association with a protected class. No one says, I don't like people in wheelchairs, so I don't want them in my building. Right. Most discrimination cases are inadvertent. For example, in the context of an ESA, emotional support animal, the New York City Commission on Human Rights has guidance documents to um, advise landlords on what, and housing providers on what their obligations are 
with respect to reasonable accommodations and modifications. And in that document, it says that an advertisement for an apartment that just says no pets is could potentially be discriminatory in and of itself. And I think that most of my clients or the clients I've dealt with find that to be the most shocking thing, that all of these ads on StreetEasy that say no pets could be a gateway to a discrimination claim instead of the better course of conduct, which is to have an advertisement that says, you know, no pets, asterisk. However, it is the policy of landlord to comply with all human rights laws when it comes to the uh, allowance of emotional support animals and service animals. Um, and I think those are the, the sort of idiosyncrasies that um, people don't realize could really expose them to a administrative investigation that could even open up further human rights claims because once the investigation starts, if other things are discovered, you could have a pattern or practice finding, which exponentially increases the damages and exposure. Corey, if you were, if I were getting into um, developing businesses in New York City right now, or in New York State in general, and I sat down with you and I said, Corey, what should I be most concerned about from a discrimination standpoint? What is, what is the one thing that you would say to me, hey, Dave, this is something that is a really big deal. You got to really make sure you do these three things to avoid it. What's the one thing you would tell me to watch out for right now? To watch out for? Um, well, you have to make sure that your employees and the agents that you are employing to put your uh, message out there know what their obligations are under the human rights law and know what your obligations are under the human rights law. Um, if you hire a broker, make sure that they know that you have a policy of being inclusionary and that you uh, won't tolerate discriminatory conduct. Um, make sure you're reviewing all of the listings before they go out so they don't say things like, no pets, no vouchers. Those are the big ticket items that could expose you to a plethora of litigation. Um, if you're buying a building that was designed and constructed after 1991, make sure it's compliant with the design and re construction requirements under the federal and state human rights laws so that you don't have an instance where, you know, you're buying a, a, a renovated landmark building they didn't put a ramp in and suddenly you have people touring that need to get in in a wheelchair and you know you think because it's a landmark landmark building you didn't need a ramp but under the design and construction requirements of the ada you kind of did when you put when the prior owner put a lot of money into it so making sure you have accessibility consultants look at properties before you buy them to determine what if anything is wrong with the property that could expose you to liability um that's a big ticket item. I think also proactively, most people that are, or all people that are in the business of renting residential real estate should have policies and trainings in place on how to respond to requests for reasonable accommodations, how to deal with emotional support animals, what the obligations are when it pertains to voucher applicants. Um, up and coming are bills proposed to prevent landlords from considering criminal background in terms of um, someone's candidacy for housing because there are studies that have proven that there's a disparate impact on persons of color when criminal background checks are used to um, deny housing, um, particularly people that are convicted of minor drug offenses as youths, et cetera. 
So there's a lot of moving parts and a lot of things that I didn't even know and I'm still learning, um, you know, and the law is changing. And the only way to really make sure that you can insulate yourself is to be proactive and create policies and, and train your employees. And if you do get sued, once one of, after those practices are implemented, evidence that you have an anti-discrimination policy and that you have proactive measures in place shows an investigative agency um, that you are proactive about these issues and will more likely result in a dismissal without damages or an adverse finding. And to that point, um, the biggest risk is if you have a discrimination finding, there are plaintiffs' lawyers out there that look for those and they commence litigation like wildfire after that to show pattern or practice because a successful plaintiff in a human rights case gets their legal fees. And there are so many firms that specialize in this. And every single time, you know, all clients that I've worked with that have had a prior litigation about discrimination, they just blow from there because these plaintiff lawyers, they file the same form complaint, they find someone, and they rack up intense legal fees that the defendant will be responsible for. And it gets very expensive. So I want to I want to focus on what we can do when we're screening potential residents for our buildings. I, I really want to make sure that uh, the people who are listening and watching, it comes across clear as to what they can do, because as somebody who owns a building, what we want is we want people who are going to pay and they're not going to interfere with the with the quiet enjoyment of everyone else in the building. So I heard you say two things right now that really make me question, I, as let's say I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm a, uni, a building owner, that make me question my practices. The first is I want to make sure these people can pay, right? But I have to be careful that I don't discriminate against them based on how they're going to pay. And I also have to make sure that they're not going to interfere with everyone else's quiet enjoyment of the building but if I do a background check and I find out that they're a criminal and that may lead to them interfering with the quiet enjoyment of the building of others, I could be I could be subject to discrimination because I did the background check and I might not want them because they're a criminal. So how do I screen people, Corey? You must hear this all the time from uh, from your clients. How do I screen people to make sure, you know, all I want, I don't care what they look like. I don't care, you know, uh, as long as they're doing things that are legal inside the unit, I don't care what they're doing. I just want people who are going to pay and who aren't going to bother other people. So how do I screen them? Well, before we even get into the specifics of those two items that you mentioned, you're sort of doing something discriminatory by even asking the question, which is acting on stereotypes or assumptions about people in a protected class. You're assuming that because someone's a criminal, they're going to create a nuisance for someone else and rejecting them without a good faith basis as to why, well, actually rewind, the uh, criminal background checks are not necessarily forbidden by the human rights laws yet. There are proposals to implement such restrictions that are in the pipeline currently. If you are receiving any sort of government assistance as a developer, you do have restrictions on what you can consider in terms of criminal backgrounds. But for now, it's not included as a protected class. However, the disparate impact literature and studies do show that, you know, the odds of recidivism when someone's released from prison 
decline exponentially as time goes on. And I think that it's five to seven, when someone's been out of prison for five to seven years and hasn't committed another crime, the odds of them being returning to the criminal justice system are slim to none. The recommendations that I put forth are that, first of all, this comes from um, DHCR. They had a video that they posted um, explaining how to implement their criminal background check recommendations if you're in receipt of government um, subsidies, tax credits, et cetera. And they recommend that you keep someone's criminal background check sealed until they pass every other element of a tenancy application so that you're not even considering it or thinking about it until someone is cleared to move to the next stage on a housing application. And I think that if you do that, the odds that you're denying based solely on criminal history are slim to none. Um, but you also have to have the temporal limitations on how far back you look, five to seven years, and also what kind of criminal history concerns you as a housing provider. Are you concerned? You're really probably concerned about burglary, assault, battery, you know, murder, um, vandalism, etc. I don't know if traffic crime is something as a New York City housing provider you should be concerned about at all. Um, you know, there are some crimes that aren't really relevant to your duty as a housing provider to provide safe and secure housing for the other tenants. Um, and then also you should ask. If someone passes your entire tenancy process and there's a hit on a crime that you think is concerning as a housing provider, you should ask that applicant to provide information to mitigate your concerns. So do they have reference letters? Um, have they been a pillar in the community since they're released from incarceration or the crime? Um, you know, what sort of, uh, was this crime, you know, a drug-related crime for someone 17 and now they're 21 and they're gainfully employed and, you know, you can't just have a blanket, no criminal policy because that's where you're going to get into a sticky situation. Um, there are only two crimes that you're allowed to have a blanket ban on, and that is someone who's a lifetime registrant or acquired lifetime registrant on a sex offender list and someone who was convicted um, of the production and distribution of methamphetamine. Everything else is sort of a gray area. Um, you can't consider misdemeanors at all. It has to be a felony or greater and a conviction, not just a pending, you know, it can't, it can't be a dismissed conviction. It can't be expunged, et cetera. So even though it's not necessarily protected right now by the human rights law, I think those are best practices to avoid any inference of discrimination or discriminatory animus. And then the second category you were talking about is the way someone can pay. And at the end of the day, it is more difficult I don't think anyone disputes that there are more hoops that need to be jumped through for a landlord to accept an applicant that receives government subsidies. There are forms, inspections, procedures, um, case workers, et cetera, that you have to work with. You cannot refuse to accept a voucher applicant just because you don't want to do that work. That is discrimination. And at the end of the day, the voucher is going to pay you for the duration of the lease, right? So it's a little bit more work up front, but you don't know if your tenant's going to get laid off that is cash. You don't know what's going to happen. And um, you can't say, I don't want to do that extra work and I don't want to put in that work just because they have a voucher. Because that's, you know, a prima facie case of discrimination and you're going to be in a really bad position to argue otherwise.
Now, if someone can't afford the rent, that is not source of income discrimination. If someone's voucher doesn't cover the rent, that is not source of income discrimination. However, if someone comes to you with a voucher that will cover 100% of the rent that you are asking for the apartment, and you reject them because they have a low credit score, that is source of income discrimination because their credit and their ability to pay is irrelevant when you're being paid fully from a third party. Okay, Corey, so that we can wrap up the interview, let's just give people a good summary of the different types of discrimination and what they should do so they can avoid discriminating in their properties as they look for new tenants or as they operate their buildings on a day-to-day basis. So in in New York City particularly, um, discrimination takes really two forms. um, Overt discrimination saying, I don't like this group or this type of person, which is rarely the uh, type of discrimination I deal with. Um, The more prevalent type of discrimination is disparate impact, where a policy or practice that a landlord has in place has a disproportionate impact on a member of a protected class, Um, like income limits have a disproportionate impact on, on a voucher recipient because they may not have income at all and might be fully subsidized by a government agency. Credit um, score baselines for someone with a subsidy in full would impact that subsidy recipient, but really be irrelevant because you're getting your money from somewhere else. There's also um, this concept as It concerns people with disabilities in New York called failure to engage in a cooperative dialogue, failure to engage with someone who requests a rule change or modification to help make a space usable or equally enjoyable when they are disabled. Um, All of these claims or theories could result in significant legal fees um, that may be owed not only to the landlord's lawyer, but to the successful you know, movement or petitioner or plaintiff. And the way to avoid exposure in this regard is to be proactive, not wait for an agency to find that you've done something, whether advertent or inadvertent, that is discriminatory and thereafter ask you to implement policies, conduct trainings, post notices, but to do those on your own accord so that if a, particularly if a meritless claim is brought, you can say, we have these policies in place, we have these checks and balances, and you can show that you are proactive and that you're doing everything one step ahead. And in all likelihood, those proceedings will be dismissed if you have nothing to show for it, or or there's no discrimination to show um, that backs up the claimant's position. And if there is some sort of inference of discrimination or something that's a little bit off, you can still get the claim to go away relatively inexpensively and quickly if you are proactive and there's less directive on behalf of the agency in terms of policies, trainings, postings, et cetera. So if you come to Rosenberg SS before there's a problem, you will save so much money down the road if a problem arises. Okay, so what's the best way for people to reach out to you, Corey, to come to you in advance of these of these issues? I'm in the office most days and available on my direct line, which is 212-551-8401, or my email address is on my bio on the firm website, C-R-O-S-E-N at Rosenberg and Estes.com. 
Okay, we're going to put all that contact info down in the show notes. If you are a property owner in New York State and you want to make sure that you don't have any practices that could cost you big bucks down the road, you need to call Corey in advance. All of her contact info is down below. Corey, thanks for joining us today. It was great to have you. Thank you for having me. All righty, folks, that'll do it for this episode of Inside Rosenberg and Estes. My name is Dave Lorenzo. We'll see you back here again for another edition of our show. Take care.